morning, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy 2015. As we continue the 88th season, 88 years of bringing public evening lectures in astronomy to you. Beautiful night here in Tucson, Arizona. And we welcome those of you watching this podcast on the World Wide Web, either through iTunes U or streaming at www.as.arizona.edu. So, thank you for coming out tonight. This is kind of strange. We usually don't have a public talk when classes aren't in session. But we had, I wanted to get a lecture in before spring break because as you know, in two weeks, the College of Science will start their lecture series. So tonight is the only steward public lecture until after our spring break in March. We invite you though in two weeks to start attending the College of Science lectures entitled Life in the Universe. They start at 7 p.m. Starting on January 26th, there will be a lecture every Monday night starting at 7 in Centennial Hall. We will then start again on March the 23rd. Our next lecture will be Dr. Gertina Besla. Also, because classes aren't in session, I don't have to make the announcement about student assignments because I don't think there are any, unless there's someone from Pima College here. No, so I don't have to do that. However, as I said earlier, it's touch and go about whether the telescope will be open tonight. At the end of tonight's lecture, I'll let you know uh, whether the telescope is open, depending on the cloud situation. So without further ado, I would like to introduce tonight's speaker. Um, as I told you, one of the things I like to do in the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Series is to introduce you to new faculty. And last year, we got a handful of brand new assistant professors. Now, you've already met Caitlin Cratter. She gave uh, the lect a lecture on exoplanets back in October. This is the second new assistant professor that I'd like to introduce you to. This is Daniel Stark. Dan received his bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin at Madison in physics and astronomy. He then received his PhD in astrophysics from the California Institute of Technology. So I guess those guys in the Big Bang Theory, you must know them, right? <laughs> or people like them. People like them, yes. Then he did his first postdoctoral position at the University of Cambridge. Now that's the original Cambridge, the one in the United Kingdom, the one where Stephen Hawking's at. And then he came back from the UK to Stewart Observatory. He was a, that was a Hubble Fellow, right? A Hubble Fellow. And then after finishing his Hubble Fellowship, we hired him as an assistant professor. Dan's interests are galaxies, galaxy evolution, and reionization, which I'm sure he's going to mention, it has something to do with what went on in the universe not long after the Big Bang. So without further ado, I call upon Professor Dan Stark to give a talk on the topic, Cosmic Dawn, the search for the first stars and galaxies. Thanks. And thanks to all of you for coming out tonight uh, to listen to the, the talk. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, yeah. Keep talking. Ah, oh, okay. Talking. All right. Uh, so when, we think, when I think of the universe, okay, the universe I think of is, is one uh, filled with galaxies. Okay, these galaxies containing hundreds of billions of stars. Many of these stars, okay, the stars we see when we you know, look up at the night sky on a clear night, of course, we now know uh, contain solar systems, uh, some containing planets like Jupiter or Saturn, some containing rocky planets like the Earth. Okay, but more than 13 and a half billion years ago, the universe was a very different place. Okay? Uh, as we look back more than 13 and a half billion years ago, the universe uh, was, was shrouded in darkness. Okay? We, before, at this period, this was before the first uh, galaxies had emerged, before the first stars had turned on. Okay, so one of the major goals of astrophysics today is to understand how the universe evolved from this period of darkness, okay, uh, to the formation of the first stars and the emergence of the first galaxies, okay, the so-called cosmic dawn. Okay, this is really one of the watershed moments uh, in the history of the universe, okay. The formation of the first stars allows 
the pollution of space with the heavy elements that make up you, me, uh, this desk, the chairs that you're sitting in, and of course allow rocky planets like Earth uh, to form. Okay, uh, so, uh, you know, this is also, I, I should say, a topic that's near and dear uh, to me. It's one I've been working on uh, since I began my PhD at Caltech back in, in 2003. Okay, and it's one that's been a major growth area of astronomy over the last decade. So what I'd like to do in the talk tonight is uh, share some of the excitement, share some of what we've been learning about this transition in cosmic history, okay, uh, over the last 10 uh, years, okay, what we've been learning and how we've been learning about the emergence of the first galaxies. Okay, so here's a schematic that illustrates uh, cosmic history. So on the, the far right-hand side, you can see uh, us uh, located today, some 13.8 billion years after the Big Bang with our telescopes, okay, relatively mature galaxies around us. Okay, but if we look back in time, okay, to the very early stages of the universe, you see uh, this very early period before the formation of the first stars. This is this period that's dubbed uh, the cosmic dark ages, with no stars, the universe being very dark. Okay, and this period is terminated when the first stars emerge. Okay, and we think this may occur, say, between 10 and 100 million years after the Big Bang. Okay, now, there's actually our first observational snapshot comes much earlier. Uh, this is uh, this image here, which many of you may recognize as the cosmic microwave background radiation. Okay, so to introduce our story, I want to say a few words on this. Okay, of course, shortly after the Big Bang, the universe is, is tremendously hot, it's very dense, but as the universe expands, it cools, okay, and eventually, some 370,000 years after the Big Bang, the universe cools sufficiently to allow electrons and protons to combine, forming the first hydrogen atoms. Okay, and it's at this point that this microwave background radiation that you see here is released. Okay, so by studying this microwave background radiation, we see the universe as it was. We have a snapshot of the universe very early on, a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang. Okay, so after this radiation is released, okay, electrons and protons uh, combine for the first time, as I said. Uh, the universe undergoes uh, a phase transition, okay? And for the first time, you have stable atoms in the universe, hydrogen atoms, okay? The universe, at this point, is permeated by a sea of hydrogen and is completely dark, okay? We here enter the cosmic dark ages, okay? So what we want to do, and what I want to describe to you today, is how we're using our telescopes to look back in time and study how this cosmic dark ages ended, Okay, when these first stars and galaxies emerged and what their nature was. Okay, so how do we as astronomers today, how can we learn anything about the universe as it was more than 13 billion years ago? Okay, you know, here we are today. How do we say anything about the early stages of the universe? Okay, so what we, of course, do is we use the fact that light is traveling to us at a finite speed. Okay, so here you see um, uh, an image uh, with many galaxies in it. Um, if you look at, say, well, if you look, say, at the Andromeda galaxy uh, on the sky, located, you know, about 25 million light years away, we don't see that galaxy as it is today. We see it as it was 25 million light years ago because the light is traveling to us at a finite speed. Okay, now... You know, we want to look back over 13 billion years ago, okay? So um, if we want to look back and say anything about uh, the very early stages of the universe, we, of course, need to look much at much greater distances, okay? The further away we look in space, the further back in time we can look, okay? So by looking at objects at very great distances, in effect, we can use our telescopes as time machines to tell us something about the universe as it was at much earlier epochs. Okay, so if you look on this, uh, this diagram here, okay, again, here we are uh, at the present day with our telescopes. Um, if we can look back at a galaxy 
and find a galaxy about four and a half billion light years away. That light will have been traveling for four and a half billion years. Okay, so the light we see uh, today reaching our telescope from that galaxy would have been emitted before the solar system existed, before Earth existed. Okay? And by looking at that galaxy, we see the universe as it was uh, at this very earlier, uh, earlier period. Okay? But what we, of course, want to do is look back and find the galaxies that are about 13 billion uh, light years away. Okay? And by studying those objects, we can see the universe and un begin to understand the universe as it was uh, in its first billion years. Okay? And our goal is to hopefully look back far enough away that eventually, with our telescopes, we can capture the first galaxies and perhaps even the first stars turning on okay, for the first time in the history of the universe. Okay, so, you know, the goal of looking back across the universe, okay, to the edge of the universe, is one that's motivated astronomers for quite, quite a long time. Okay, but, you know, as we're talking about, you know, looking back billions of light years. This is a very recent phenomenon. Okay, in fact, you know, when this public lecture series started, many astronomers thought that the galaxy itself was the entire universe. Okay, in the early 20s, this, there was a lot of debate about this. Okay, it wasn't until Hubble very precisely measured a distance to the Andromeda galaxy uh, that he was able to show that the Andromeda galaxy was outside of the Milky Way. Okay, and that there were other galaxies like our own out there in the universe. Okay, so that's less than 100 years uh, that we've really been able to study the universe in this way. Okay, but in the, you know, in the last, in the, just a few decades after Hubble, progress ramped up dramatically. Okay, and our ability to study distant objects across the universe really uh, received a boost with the discovery of objects known as quasars. Okay, these are very, as I'll show you, very luminous objects, which we think are powered by the accretion of matter onto supermassive black holes. Okay, and this powers very energetic radiation. Okay, so these objects, this is right here, this is 3C273. Okay, this was the first of these objects identified. 3C stands for the third Cambridge catalog. This object was identified in 1959 in a survey using a, a radio telescope in Cambridge in the United Kingdom. Uh, and shortly after that, astronomers identified a, a counterpart to this radio detection in the visible light, in the light we could see with our eyes. Okay, but there was a lot of uncertainty as to what these objects were. Okay, as you can see from the visible, object, the visible light image here, it looks kind of like a star. It's not fuzzy like a galaxy. It's very, it's point-like. Um, but, uh, but its spectrum looked like no, no other stars that people had ever seen before. Okay, so people didn't know whether it was some kind of exotic star uh, in the galaxy or whether it was an extragalactic object. Okay, it wasn't until 1963 that Martin Schmidt, a, a Dutch professor at uh, Caltech, uh, was able to get a spectrum of, one of, of, of this object with the 200-inch telescope, the Hale Telescope at Palomar in Southern California, uh, that we began to understand what these objects were. Okay, and what, what Schmidt uh, identified was, he looked at the spectrum and he said, this looks like a spectrum I've seen before. Okay, these features here, these are standard features that he would see. They're just not at the right wavelength. They're redder than he would have expected. And what he deduced is that uh, this object was at a tremendous distance and its spectrum was what we call redshifted. Okay, the further away an object is, by, um, you know, because the universe is expanding following Hubble's law, the greater that object is moving away from us, the greater its velocity, recessional speed is. Okay, and just as when you listen to an ambulance go by and its pitch, its frequency drops as you go, uh, as it, it recedes from you, uh, the further a galaxy is located away from you, the greater its velocity and hence the redder its light looks. Okay, so Schmidt was able to take this spectrum from Palomar and say this object was located at a great distance. Okay, and it, you know, in fact, this object isn't, is located about, say, two and a half billion light years away. That's not, that's not a tremendous distance on, this, on the cosmic scales, but, the, uh, but it's uh, certainly not anywhere near our galaxy. And the, thing, the important thing is that by being located at such a great distance, yet being so bright, uh, this implied that this object had to be exceedingly luminous, okay? 
uh, more than a trillion times as luminous as our own sun. In fact, if you were take, to take one of these objects and put it at the location of Pollux, okay, one of the stars in, in the constellation of Gemini, it would appear as bright as the sun. Okay, so these objects are so luminous that you can see them all the way across the universe. Okay, and there lies uh, their importance. Okay, so shortly after Schmidt identified that these were located at great distances, people began to um, you know, identify other of these objects located uh, at even greater distances. Okay, and you know, a real exciting discovery happened just four years after uh, this discovery in 1967. Okay, these objects, they're so luminous that they're like lighthouse, they're beacons. Okay, they shine a flashlight on the matter between the galaxies. Okay, and what uh, Jim Gunn and Bruce, Bruce Peterson showed, and actually it was 1965, just a few years later, they were able to show that by studying these spectra, that by studying these quasars, that the space between the galaxies, okay, remember, at the snapshot after, after uh, the microwave background radiation is released, the universe was permeated by this sea of neutral hydrogen. Okay, space is filled with hydrogen. Okay, but what Gunn and Peterson showed in 65 was that a few billion years after the Big Bang, that hydrogen had been destroyed. Okay, so something had happened uh, to cause uh, this hydrogen that filled all of space just you know, a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang uh, to, to be destroyed. Okay, and you know, I should say that this, they, you know, these students were, they were graduate students when this happened. They were graduate students at Caltech. There was a journal club discussing the literature um, they went back to their offices, discussed it, and wrote up this paper, which is now one of the most fundamental results uh, in this field. Okay, and uh, I, just a few words on how they did this. Um, here is a, a spectrum of one of these quasars. Okay, if there's any hydrogen present in deep space, you, you can see these sort of wiggles here. All of these wiggles go away. Okay, the fact that there's any light here Okay, you can see intensity on the y-axis here. The fact that there's any light here shows that the hydrogen in the space between the galaxies had been destroyed. Okay, so we're gonna come, I'm going to come back to this point a little bit later. Okay, this is a few billion years after the Big Bang. Okay, so, um, okay, so as you can see here, uh, some process in the early universe must have destroyed the hydrogen that once permeated space. And the question is, what happened? Okay, um, so, you know, we have, uh, theorists have put together um, uh, a framework by which to understand these observations. Okay, so you can see here going from uh, the very early universe to the present day, okay, we have uh, the formation of hydrogen right here that I've discussed earlier when the, when the microwave background radiation is, is released. Okay, so we're at 300,000 years after the Big Bang here. Then we have the Dark Ages, terminated when the first stars and galaxies emerge. Okay, so the universe enters a period called the Dark Ages. Okay, and what's happening during this period is that gravity is acting on, uh, on the hydrogen and the dark matter that exists. Okay, and this matter is clumping together, growing denser and denser with time. Okay, and eventually, uh, these very dense clumps of hydrogen can collapse to form stars, okay? And that's when these first stars uh, uh, emerge, okay? These stars, when they turn on, they emit a lot of radiation into space. And eventually, uh, once there are enough stars, enough galaxies, uh, we think that the radiation, the energetic radiation emitted by these systems can break apart the hydrogen in the deep space. Okay, into its constituent electrons and protons. Okay, and at this point, the universe undergoes its second major phase transition. Right? You go from space being filled by neutral hydrogen to it being filled again by electrons and protons. And it is this process that we call reionization. Okay, so by studying when and how this process of reionization, whereby hydrogen was broken apart a second time, by studying when and how this happened, we hope to learn about the emergence of the first energetic sources in the universe. Okay, so this is the framework uh, that we have going forward. Okay, now, um, you know, theoretical astronomers, those using 
computer simulations and pencil and paper to describe uh, this period. I've spent a lot of time over the past uh, 15, uh, 15 or so years uh, trying to predict what's going to happen um, here. Okay? And here uh, shows some snapshots of some of this work. Okay? These are from computer simulations of the first stars to form in the universe. Okay? So you can see how the universe evolves as predicted by these computer simulations from 16 million years after the Big Bang to 140 million years after the Big Bang to 180 million years after the Big Bang. Okay, you can see at this point, just you know, less than 20 million years after the Big Bang, the, the gas, the dark matter, they seem fairly uniform, uniformly uh, distributed across uh, this simulation. Okay, but over time, as we, we saw on the last slide, gravity pulls the matter together. Okay, slight uh, overdensities, areas where there's a bit more matter than, uh, than adjacent uh, uh, regions collect matter more rapidly. And eventually you get these higher density regions. You see this filamentary structure with these high density knots. Okay, the same goes with the dark matter. And eventually, 180 million years uh, after the Big Bang, the densities become large enough uh, for uh, <coughs> a gaseous cloud to undergo uh, uh, gravitational collapse and for stars to, to turn on. Okay, so um, this is what we think happens. Maybe a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, these first stars turning on. Okay, now, should say something about these first stars. You know, when we think about stars today, we think of, you know, objects perhaps like the sun, um, but these objects are, are very different today. Okay, and, and this is because, um, you know, over time, of course, uh, stars uh, in, their, in their cores, they build up at elements heavier than hydrogen. Okay, you can see in this kind of uh, uh, image here, you have an iron-nickel core, uh, oxygen, carbon, helium. And when these kinds of stars uh, die, uh, they explode uh, and they eject this, these heavier elements into, into the nebula, into the gas around them. When subsequent generations of stars form, they form from the gas that's been polluted by these heavier elements. Okay, and it's because you have these heavier elements, of course, that you could hope to form a rocky planet uh, like our own. Okay, uh, but you know these these heavy elements also really play a, a, a important role in how the stars form. Uh, and you know it, it goes without saying that the first stars then form from gas without any heavy elements. They form from chemically pristine gas. And because of this, we think, or the theorists suggest, that the stars uh, may, the first stars may be dramatically different from the kinds of stars we see around us today. Okay? Uh, this is actually still a, a big topic of controversy in the field. A lot of people are working on this, but some of the suggestions are that the stars may be a hundred times as massive as the sun. Okay? And in, in, in that regard, they are going to live and die in very different ways than, our, uh, than stars at the present day do. Okay, so these first stars, the nature of them are thought to be very different. It's an important point. Okay. Um, so what happens after uh, the first stars form? Uh, well, over time, gra gravity continues to act, and you start to build up larger clouds of gas, and you get collections of stars, galaxies emerging, Okay, and as we saw, uh, these galaxies, collections of stars, emit lots of light, and this process of reionization begins. Okay, so here's a computer simulation uh, demonstrating uh, this reionization process. Okay, so what you can see here is, you know, the black is the hydrogen, and the, this is the, the ionized gas, uh, which is uh, formed by the radiation emitted by the galaxies. Okay, so we're moving forward here, say, 300, 400 million years after the Big Bang. More and more of the space is filled with this ionized uh, material. Um, you know, we're getting forward here 600, 700 million years after the Big Bang. You still have some neutral clumps. And then you get this very rapid end as you reach about a billion years after the Big Bang. Uh, and then here we have the universe as we think it is a few billion years after the Big Bang. Uh, filled with, uh, with galaxies. <clears throat> okay, so this again is, is a simulation conducted by these people here. Um, this is what uh, theorists predict 
might occur in the first few billion years of cosmic time. Okay, so this, uh, this framework that I've described over the past few slides, this is really, you know, this is theorists' view of cosmic dawn, okay? You can see here, you know, you, you move from this very neutral uh, period of the dark ages, the first stars turning on, uh, destroying the hydrogen in deep space, and eventually this process of reionization. Okay, so this, as I said, is, an, is, a, is a regime that theorists have loved to work in over the past, uh, over the past decade. Okay, there's, with no observations here, really, uh, there's a lot of room for them to make whatever predictions they want. Um, and, you know, of course, no observations to tell them that they have anything wrong. Um, so there's, a, you know, in that sense, in the last, you know, say, 15 years, there's been a lot of attention. Theorists have really enjoyed working in this area and, and putting together um, these, uh, <coughs> these, these simulations, as I've showed on the last few slides. Okay, but as someone who's an observer who uses telescopes, of course, you know, we'd like to say, well, this is wonderful. These are pretty simulations, but did it really happen this way? Okay, can we use our telescopes to look back far enough to figure out uh, whether reionization happened the way that simulation showed, whether the first galaxies were similar to what the theorists t tell us, whether the first stars are indeed these tremendously massive stars, as the theorists are telling us, okay? And that's what I want to transition to, because in the last five years or so, the observations have made a tremendous amount of progress. We're beginning to catch up and have something to say uh, in this period. Okay, so what I want to talk about here is, again, the, you know, something of an observational adventure, starring our ground-based facilities. Okay, we have the Keck telescopes on Mauna Kea in Hawaii, uh, the Magellan uh, telescopes on Las Campanas in Chile, and, of course, the large binocular telescopes on, on down the road on Mount Graham. Okay, so we've been using these telescopes a lot to try to study these distant reaches of the universe. And in particular, we're using spectrographs on these telescopes that allow us to disperse the light uh, and, and study the detailed nature uh, of these very distant uh, objects. Okay, and in addition to the ground-based facilities, uh, we've used uh, three unique space telescopes. We've got the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, the Spitzer Space Telescope, still collecting a lot of great data, um, and uh, a set of microwave uh, facilities studying the microwave background radiation. Uh, now Planck is up, uh, has collected a, a lot of data, uh, WMAP uh, before it. Okay, so uh, Hubble, uh, provides exquisite deep imaging that I'll spend some time talking about. Hubble allows us to find the most distant galaxies. Okay, then we look to Spitzer. It's just 85 centimeter puny telescope in space. And Spitzer is sensitive to the older stars. It's sensitive to redder light, older stars in these galaxies. So by combining the information from Hubble and Spitzer, we can get some idea on the, on the history of star formation in these very early, very distant uh, objects, and I'll say a few words on that. Okay, and of course, uh, the, the microwave background radiation um, and its scattering by foreground material um, has been a, a big area of progress from these two satellites, and I'll say some words on this as well. Okay, so uh, what we want to do, of course, is trace the history of starlight. Okay, here are galaxies we see at the present day, majestic, spiral, uh, galaxies, massive elliptical galaxies. You can see a large panorama of these galaxies. Well, if you were to go back and look at these objects, what they looked at at earlier times, they're going to look very different. Okay? And we want to map uh, these galaxies, how they looked, as you go back further and further in time. Okay? And to do this, you have to take deep images of space to detect galaxies uh, from the early universe. Okay? We're not going to see this, these same galaxies uh, as we look back deeper in space, but we might see galaxies like the ones how these systems were uh, at earlier epochs. Okay, and again, as I said, Hubble has been phenomenal for this. Okay, back when I was um, in just starting high school, okay, I remember this happened actually. Hubble peered its gaze uh, to this small patch of sky in the Big Dipper for about 10 days, December 1995. Okay, so the director of Space Telescope decided to do this, right? And he chose this field to avoid stars or other cosmic objects, right? This is a relatively bold move. Generally, when we 
apply to use telescopes, we study something we know about, we know is there. He, he looked, the, you know, he chose to point Hubble in this region where in fact we know there were not bright stars. And what we found was called, uh, shown here, this is the Hubble Deep Field. Okay, and I remember, you know, seeing PBS specials about this back in the time and just being floored, right? Each one of these little specks here is a galaxy containing, you know, tens of billions of stars in it. Okay, so what you see here across this image is 3,000 galaxies, including some of the most distant known objects in the universe at this time, back in 95. Okay, so here you're seeing uh, the, some of the faintest specks you see here are galaxies uh, that light has been traveling for, say, about 10 billion years to reach the Earth. Okay, so you're seeing, uh, you're able to study the universe as it was, say, three to four billion years after the Big Bang with some of the most distant objects in this image. Okay. Um, so how, okay, if you look in this image, though, 3,000 galaxies, how are we going to figure out which are the interesting ones, which are the most distant ones? We want to study, uh, you know, the first few billion years of time, how do, you, how do you pick out the most distant objects? Um, and the, the technique that developed uh, in the mid-90s uh, was uh, one developed by Chuck Steidel, a professor at Caltech, and some of his uh, colleagues. And what he uh, suggested was he used a method that he uh, coined as the, the dropout method. Okay. And what this is, is he used, uh, you know, at these great distances, uh, the signal from a remote galaxy, as you can see here, declines due to absorption uh, by, by hydrogen. And this, this drop in the spectrum happens at a very uh, specific frequency that is known, okay? Uh, but as, an as we look to greater and greater distances, the light is shifted more and more to the red, as we talked about earlier from the Doppler effect, okay? So this characteristic drop in the frequency from the hydrogen absorption happens at progressively redder, um, redder wavelengths. Okay, so what Steidel and his colleagues looked for is an object that had this drop in its, uh, in its light uh, at a specific frequency, at a specific wavelength. So here you can see this object, it shows up in the red and the green, but when you look in the, in the uh, blue, in the ultraviolet, you do not see the galaxy. Okay, and Steidel predicted that this object would be located based off of this spectral break being situated between these two filters, that this object would be located two billion years or so uh, after the Big Bang. Okay, this is a, a rough distance measure. Okay, so what he did was he went to Palomar uh, and took a deep image and found all of the galaxies uh, that looked um, like this right here with the red, the green, and the nothing in the UV. And then he went to Keck, okay, Keck, just after Keck was uh, commissioned, you know, in the 90, 93, 94, and he took a spectrum of the object, just like Martin Schmidt took a spectrum of the quasar back in 63. And what he was able to do was confirm uh, the distance of these objects. These objects were indeed located uh, two billion years after the Big Bang. Uh, and for the first time, astronomers could assemble large samples of very distant galaxies. And by studying these spectra, you could begin to study their chemistry and uh, the stars that were in these galaxies. Okay, so this was a huge leap forward. Astronomers have been trying to, to find uh, what they were terming at the time primordial galaxies for over a decade with no success. And it was really this, uh, this leap forward by Seidel that allowed this to be possible. Okay. Uh, what did these early galaxies look like? Okay, so here again you see the kinds of galaxies we see around us today. As you look back, say, five billion years after the Big Bang, you see objects that look uh, something like this. You can still see some hint of, say, spiral, you know, disc-like structure. Uh, you see things that maybe look uh, like uh, spheroidal, uh, ellipticals. But then as you look back to the kinds of objects that, that uh, astronomers were studying two to three billion years after the Big Bang, they looked completely different. Some of them looked like train wrecks, okay? These are smaller than the galaxies we see with us uh, around us today. They're more irregular and disturbed. Okay, so the galaxies uh, in, the, in the early universe appeared to be very different. Okay, so these were maybe the building blocks of the galaxies we see 
uh, here today, okay? They had yet to grow and develop their morphological structures that, we, uh, that we're so familiar with in deep images from Hubble uh, today. Okay, okay, so here, back to this, uh, this image, this schematic here, okay? So, you know, the observational progress has been, has been great that I've described uh, so far, okay? Uh, Steidel's work took us back uh, two billion years after the Big Bang, okay? So here we are, about right here, looking at these objects. We've been able to map the growth of galaxies from two billion years to about 13.8 billion years after the Big Bang, okay? But we have this missing chapter now, Okay, after the microwave background radiation is released and up to about two billion years after the Big Bang, where at that point, uh, you know, about a decade ago, we had very little information as to how, um, uh, how galaxies, uh, you know, how cosmic history proceeded. Okay, but it's this early period that's so fundamental, as we said, right? The emergence of the first stars, the growth of the first galaxies, the formation of the first black holes. All of this stuff happens in this missing chapter. Okay, so how do we push back uh, to yet more distant reaches of the universe? Okay, um, so first a few words on some uh, progress that happened 2002-2003, uh, just as I was actually entering graduate school, that gives us a lot of indirect evidence on what uh, was ongoing in the first billion years. Okay, when the WMAP satellite uh, was launched, it began to create a, a picture of the polarization of this microwave background radiation. Um, and what it basically, if you basically look at this image here, it explains why this is interesting to us. Okay, you see that this microwave background radiation, as I said, it's emitted about 370,000 years after the Big Bang. Okay, now as time moves forward, eventually uh, galaxies emerge at some point and they destroy the hydrogen in deep space, this process of reionization that I've, that I've described. And at this point, you have deep space filled with electrons again. These electrons scatter this microwave background radiation, and the light is partially polarized by the scattering. Okay, so when we look at the light today with WMAP, uh, by studying how much the light is polarized, we can say something about when this process of reionization occurred. Okay, so if that's a, a bit too complicated, the bottom line that I want you to take out away from is that WMAP revealed that the hydrogen atoms in deep space had begun to be broken apart by 300 to 500 million years after the Big Bang. Okay, so the reionization process had to have begun by this epoch. Okay, the first energetic objects emerged before 300 million years after the Big Bang. That's the take-home point from this result. Okay, the next important result came uh, once the Sloan Digital Sky Survey uh, began collecting data on the APO telescope uh, over in New Mexico. And what, uh, what Sloan was able to find was it was able to find quasars at greater distances than had ever been found before. Okay, so we're now in the early 2000s finding quasars located at about a billion years after the Big Bang. Okay, 900 million years after the Big Bang or so. And what you know, we, we come back to this, you know, this Gunn and Peterson uh, thing I discussed uh, at the outset of the talk, right? We use these quasars to study as powerful beacons, flashlights, to study the matter between the galaxies. And remember I said if there's any light coming out here, okay, here's the spectrum of the quasar, if there's any light coming out, uh, there's um, the, the hydrogen in the space has been destroyed. Okay, so in, uh, you know, through the early part of the 2000s, Zhao uh, Yifan, a professor here at the University of Arizona, was doing his thesis, his PhD thesis, at uh, Princeton, late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, what you see here are these spectra of these quasars located, say, about um, a billion years after the Big Bang to about 800, 900 million years after the Big Bang. And it's maybe a bit hard to see, but what you see is there's a big transition. You still see these wiggles here, Okay, so there's uh, hydrogen in space has been destroyed. Okay, but as you get back to this point, you can see it's completely dark, flat, no wiggles. Okay, so what this suggested is that the hydrogen between the galaxies is still partially neutral, some trace amount of hydrogen present about 900 million years after the Big Bang. 
Okay, so reionization ends, say, about a billion years after the Big Bang from these results. Okay, so again, the two, what, this, what these two results tell us is that this transition in deep space happened in a window between 300 and 900 million years after the Big Bang. Reionization happened in this window. Most likely, this was from the blaze of light from the first luminous systems, whatever they might be, first stars, first galaxies, uh, quasar-type, uh, objects. Okay, so what we now, this sets out the, the region of the universe we want to look in. What we want to say now is can we go back in this regime and find the sources that were responsible for this transition, for this phase transition of reionization. Okay, so enter the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. Okay, uh, in 2003 and 2004, Hubble revisited the concept of looking at a blank piece of sky uh, for a large number of days. Eleven days of visible light observations in 2003 and four uh, created the deepest ever visible light view of the universe. Okay, and that's the image that you see right here. This was using the advanced camera for surveys uh, on the, the Hubble Space Telescope, which was a relatively new camera at that point. Okay, so this survey covers a very small area. It spans just 2% the area of the moon, if you were to look up at the night sky. But the image contains over 10,000 galaxies, some located just a billion years after the Big Bang, some of these objects. Ah, ooh, that, oh, good. Um, okay, so uh, again, we want to find the most distant objects. We want to isolate uh, the sources located a billion years after the Big Bang from the other uh, 10,000 objects in this image. Um, and so we use the same technique that Steidel developed to study objects two billion years after the Big Bang. Okay, but these objects, by being located at greater distances, uh, have their light just reddened a little bit. It's at a slightly greater redshift, as we say. Okay, so again, you see these objects appearing in the red filters, but uh, dropping out of the visible and blue filters now. Okay, so uh, we and other people have selected a lot of these objects in these... Uh, in these images from Hubble that I just showed. Uh, and then, you know, this gives us a rough idea of the distance. We then go to our ground-based telescopes, okay, and here you can see these faint specks that we identified in those very deep images from Hubble. We go to Keck, okay, these are spectra uh, that I took uh, in 2007, 2008, and you can see here a bright spectral feature and its wavelength, its observed wavelength, gives us a very precise distance to these objects. Okay, and this feature, uh, we call it, it's a hydrogen spectral feature we call Linen Alpha. Okay, say a few words on this a bit later. Okay, um, so what do we learn about these objects? Again, we go to Spitzer. Spitzer sees redder light, uh, and uh, it, uh, it can tell us how old these galaxies are. It allows us to essentially uh, you know, uh, probe the fossil record of star formation uh, in these galaxies. Hubble tells us about what's going on, uh, you know, at, say, when these objects are being observed, say, a billion years after the Big Bang. Uh, Spitzer allows us to say whether there are any stars that are very old still present in these galaxies. And one of the surprises is, is that these galaxies appeared much brighter. Okay, so here you see the light in Hubble, very faint. And then in Spitzer wavelengths, the galaxies are much brighter. Okay, so the idea, the surprise, was that just a billion years after the Big Bang, we are seeing fairly old stars still. Um, okay, so you can see that here. We're, you know, expecting to see the infants in the very early universe, yet we're seeing these relatively old, massive objects. Okay, so this was a surprise at the time, a cosmic uh, conundrum. Uh, so what this basically showed us is that the mass, you know, we were able to take a census of how much stars were present in the universe just a billion years after the Big Bang. And what we are finding is that there were already a lot of stars out there. Okay, so, you know, it, these stars had to have formed yet at an earlier period. Perhaps this window when reionization happened. Okay, so this motivates us, you know, to look back and try to see whether we could find uh, the these, you know, old systems forming at yet more distant epochs. Okay, so again, what, what have we learned to this point? Okay, many stars had formed by the time the universe is about a billion years old. The microwave background radiation and, and the quasars that uh, people identified 
uh, imply the first galaxies appear uh, when the universe is, say, 300 to 800 million years old. The first galaxies had already been in place by this period. Okay, so what we need to do is extend observations to earlier times to capture uh, these first galaxies. Uh, and the, the two ways forward are, that I want to discuss, are using what we call gravitational telescopes. Say a few words on this. Okay, and also using Hubble's new infrared camera. Uh, and this is what I want to start out by talking about. Okay, uh, Hubble's initial infrared camera, of course, was built by uh, Roger Thompson, a professor here at the University of Arizona. Um, in 2009, uh, an updated infrared camera was installed on Hubble in a pretty spectacular servicing mission uh, by astronauts, and this completely revitalized Hubble. Uh, it was amazing what happened. Okay, so this camera is 10 times more efficient than the previous instrumentation on Hubble. Um, Okay, and it led to, you know, this is the camera we call the Wide Field Camera 3, and it led to a revolution, really, in our understanding of the early universe. Okay, here was uh, the, the earlier camera, the NICMOS uh, camera, uh, what, 72 orbits, okay? So Hubble stared at this uh, piece of sky as it orb orbited around the Earth in 72 times, okay? In just 16 orbits with this new camera, you see a much sharper image, okay? So... You know, just look, you can see much fainter things emerging in a much shorter period of time, okay? And with these fainter objects, we could study further back uh, in cosmic history, okay? So, uh, not surprisingly, uh, you know, in 2009 and again in 2012, we, we revisited the concept of an ultra-deep field. Um, and we looked at that same visible ultra-deep field image that I showed several slides ago in the near-infrared. Okay, and you can see the image here, okay? And this is something that uh, a lot of us worked on here at Arizona. You can see uh, the, the website listed up at the top, okay? And this really, with the faintest, most distant objects we could see in this, objects, in this image, revolutionized the study of galaxies in the first billion years, okay? And just to emphasize, this is a, a little schematic that we put together, okay? So again, here we are, you know, um, you know, when... Uh, with the visible light uh, ultra-deep field, okay, and now with the new ultra-deep field, we're out in this regime um, about, you know, 500 million years after the Big Bang, okay? So for the first time, we have a sample of galaxies in this period when we think reionization is happening, okay? So what are these galaxies? What are we learning about this very early window? Okay, so... You know, this, it's, it's quite amazing. This is a very competitive field, okay? Astronomers, you know, we, we take these deep images of the sky and, you know, we put them available on the Internet. Anyone can download them and analyze the galaxies in them, okay? And it's the sort of thing where you know you're not going to sleep for 24 hours because you're downloading the data that everyone else is and trying uh, to put your paper describing the objects on... Uh, the, uh, on the internet to, for everyone to see. And in fact, people quite often have written much of the paper before, you know, these data are released. So it's, you know, it's a mad rush. Uh, so within four days of the release of these images, you know, four papers appeared from four separate international teams. And within four months, a further eight articles were written. And this was back in 2009, okay? Since then, you know, it's, it's vastly more. We're in the hundreds of papers on these images. Okay, um, so here is one of these objects that we think is located about 800 million years after the Big Bang. You see just a faint speck, nothing spectacular. Again, you don't see it uh, in the visible at all by this dropout method, and then you see it in the near-infrared. Okay, and the improvement on the earlier camera you can see here. It's the same galaxy in the top seen with the earlier camera, and this is what we're seeing with the new camera. Okay, so for the first time we have a, a sample of galaxies in the first billion years, between about 500 million years and a billion years after the Big Bang, giving us a census of these very early galaxies. Um, so there's two results I briefly want to touch on. Okay, the first is what we've been able to do with our ground-based telescopes, so using, say, the, the LBT here in Arizona, uh, the Keck, the Magellan. Okay, remember I, I showed you that uh, there was this spectral feature, this hydrogen spectral feature, Lyman Alpha, that we saw in the galaxies located a billion years after the Big Bang. Okay, but as we look deeper into space and there's still residual hydrogen in deep space between the galaxies, this 
spectral feature, Lyman alpha, uh, gets obliterated. We do not expect to see Lyman alpha if there's still hydrogen between the galaxies. Um, okay, so hydrogen spectral line is weakened by the presence of hydrogen in deep space. Okay, so this sort of dark ages, this hydrogen acts as a fog, as you can see here, obscuring the line emission from galaxies. So, you know, like it's struggle to see that the light is scattered uh, by the fog if you're out driving, it's the same with this Lyman alpha line. You're not going to see it in these distant galaxies. So one of the signposts of the, the, the dark ages is a drop in the visit, visibility of this hydrogen spectral line. So we spent a lot of time looking with our biggest telescopes on the ground, searching for this line emission in these galaxies that Hubble has found. Um, and what you can see here in this figure is that this line emission becomes more and more common as you go back to about a billion years after the Big Bang, and then suddenly there's this drop. As you, these are the new samples at you know, 800 and 600 million years after the Big Bang. This hydrogen spectral feature is all but absent. Okay, so what we think now is that this emission is, Lyman alpha emission is heavily absorbed uh, in the galaxies from the first billion years, and it's evidence for residual hydrogen between galaxies. So what we're seeing is that a lot, here's this reionization simulation. You have some patches that have been ionized and some that are still neutral. Okay, and many of the galaxies are located in these windows, and their line emission is just uh, wiped away. Okay, so we're really getting close to the cosmic dark ages now, we think, with these new samples. Okay, also of interest, what's the most distant objects we can find? Okay, so in these images we took of the, the ultra-deep field back in 2012, these were the six most distant objects we could find. These look pretty ratty, right? I mean, it doesn't look like much. They're at the, faint, the faintest things we've ever seen in the near-infrared. Okay, so these galaxies, we think, are captured when the universe is just about 520 million years old. Light travel time from these things, 13.2 billion years the light has been traveling to us. Okay, and so by studying these six objects, okay, we can get a census of how many galaxies were present at this early period. And what we're finding is that we're seeing fewer galaxies forming at this early epoch. Old stars, remember Spitzer had seen these old stars one billion years after the Big Bang. These seem very absent in this early period. Okay, so is this additional evidence that Hubble is getting close to the dark ages? These are really very close to the first generations of galaxies. Okay, so this is quite exciting, but you have to be a bit cautious. These are so faint. This is really pushing the limits of our current facilities. Okay, so one way that we can get some better idea of what might be going on is to use these gravitational telescopes that I mentioned uh, a few slides ago. Okay, we can boost the light from these distant objects using a, a technique called gravitational lensing. Okay, so this schematic kind of illustrates what's, what happens here. You have the light from a very distant galaxy. It's traveling on its way uh, to Earth, okay, but it passes, happens to pass along the line of sight to a massive cluster of galaxies um, located uh, more close to the, to the Earth, say 11 billion years after the Big Bang as opposed to 500 million years after the Big Bang. Okay, and this massive cluster of galaxies is going to bend uh, the light from these galaxies by you know, the concepts introduced by the general theory of relativity, and in doing so, it magnifies the light from these objects. It amplifies them. Okay, it acts as a, what we call a gravitational telescope, okay, and allows us to study fainter things than we would have otherwise been able to do. Okay, this notion of, uh, of, uh, of these gravitational telescopes was actually been around for ages. Fritz Zwicky, uh, another Caltech professor, was, he deduced the presence of copious amounts of dark matter uh, in, in clusters. Okay, and this, these massive clusters, he suggested, uh, should uh, amplify the light of distant objects by this process of gravitational lensing. Okay, this was in, 19, in the 30s. Okay, so this lay dormant, this uh, idea lay dormant for another 50 years. Okay, and it wasn't until Hubble launched, really, uh, that uh, we began to find a lot of these uh, gravitationally lensed objects. So you can see here many of the distant, most distant galaxies known uh, from the early 90s onwards were found via this gravitational lensing technique. Okay, you can see some of these objects here. The lensing, it, 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 it distorts the light from the galaxies. It stretches it, magnifying it at the same time. So you can see these ra rather 
strange looking things, these arc-like structures. Um, and you know, as you can see here, again, these, these distance breakers have consistently been these uh, magnified objects. Okay, so uh, here uh, is an example of one located about, eight, uh, about 900 million years after the Big Bang. You can see this cluster here in the foreground, these massive uh, elliptical galaxies. Um, and then these are amplifying uh, the light from this set of objects here. And actually, this is the same galaxy. Its light has just been distorted so that we see multiple image of the same galaxy. You can see much redder because it's at a great distance, uh, and, and, you know, but it's much brighter than it would have otherwise been. Okay? We would not have been able to see this object with our current facilities if it wasn't for this magnification. Okay, so this opens up a whole new window on the study of early galaxies. And with Hubble's new camera, lensing has identified the most distant things we've ever laid eyes on. Okay, so this right now is the record breaker. This galaxy we think is uh, from when the universe was just 420 uh, million years old. And it's quite bright. I mean, I don't think we're going to find anything this bright, this distant, uh, for the next uh, decade or so. Um, so, you know, this is quite spectacular. And uh, Hubble's now, what's happening now, Hubble's putting a lot of effort into studying, uh, looking for more of these uh, gravitationally lensed galaxies to get a good census of the, the star formation in this early period. And here's, a, here's a, a preview of what it's found, okay? As you look back, here's the, the time. You can see here 400 million years after the Big Bang, 500, 600, 800. You can see the amount of stars, the amount of galaxies with, with stars forming is just dropping precipitously. And here we are, you know, so we're really getting close, maybe, to this time when the first stars are, uh, are emerging. Okay, and, you know, with this amplification, uh, from, from Hubble, can we actually, uh, from the, the lensing, can we actually learn anything about these galaxies? Okay, and this is my final point. Okay, so this is something we've been doing uh, with uh, a variety of our ground-based facilities recently, okay, taking spectra of these objects and trying to say something about the chemistry and the stars in these early galaxies. And what you see here, this faint little black speck, this is light from carbon atoms in one of the most distant galaxies we've ever been able to see. Okay, so we know carbon is present here just 700 million years after the big, big Bang. And to form this carbon, you need a tremendous amount of energetic radiation. Okay, so these galaxies are, are very different. This is a huge surprise. This either requires these very massive stars that I introduced, maybe these first stars with these much more massive than the present suns, or perhaps some sort of low-luminosity quasar. Okay, so there's a lot of surprises, I think, left to be found in what the nature of these galaxies, these early galaxies, actually is. Okay, so uh, final slide, summer closing here. You know, what, as we look forward, what does the future hold uh, for this field? I, I hope to have convinced you that we've made a lot of progress in the last five years. Uh, in the coming five years, I think, you know, we're going to see improved performance from our existing telescopes. It's going to extend the present work. Uh, Hubble's infrared cameras still collecting data. We're still finding yet more of these objects from 400, 500 million years after the Big Bang. Uh, this lensing technique is uh, receiving a lot of attention now. And the, the ground-based facilities, like the Large Binocular Telescope, the Keck, are beginning to really study the detailed chemistry and the stars in these early galaxies. Okay, but as we look forward into the future, you know, this is really one of the, expected to be one of the major growth areas of uh, astronomy. Okay, 2018, the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be launched. Uh, we're, of course, building uh, the infrared camera. Uh, the team here is led by uh, Marsha Riki, a professor at Arizona. Uh, so a lot of us are beginning to think a lot about this. This is going to take, uh, to look back far enough, we think, to maybe identify truly the first galaxies. Uh, we're also here at Arizona taking part in constructing the next generation of, of ground-based telescopes. So right now we're using things that are 8 and 10 meters. We're going to have 20-plus meter telescopes, the giant Magellan telescope by the 2020s. Okay? So this is really going to allow us to probe the first stars, the first galaxies in this window 200 to 500 million years after the Big Bang. So thanks for your attention. I'll, I'll close here. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dan. First of all, the bad news, it got really cloudy out there. So the telescope will not be open for public viewing tonight, I'm sorry. We have time for questions, though. Questions for Professor Stark. 
Thank you. When you um, showed the bill from this, the gravitational start to the present day, um, does, is that bell uh, shaped to the um, actual um, this width, of, projected width of the galaxy over the over the time to, to some scale, or is that just a drawing basically to show us? Are you talking about this right here? No, the, the original bell that you showed. Oh, I think she meant that first image you had. The, the very the first image. From the cosmic background. The. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 I see this one. Um, yeah, it's halfway through here. This there, one right back here. up one. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Is, is, is that built to a scale of some sort, or is it just a bell? Um, the, it's, hmm. I, I think it's probably built to uh, what we call redshift, which is roughly, um, you know, defined as how the, the, the size of the universe is, uh, is varying over over cosmic time. So uh, I'm not sure exactly the scale of this. What I can tell you is this is you know about 13.8 billion years after the Big Bang. This is. Um, I think the question is suggesting does the shape of the, the vertical uh, size of that bell have anything to do with the expansion of the universe? Exactly. Yeah, I think there. I mean, the universe obviously gets much bigger than this. I guess than this sort of. Bell, but I think it probably gives some conception that uh, that there is some expansion of space over this period. Thank you. Yeah. Other questions? Oh, down here. Yeah. What, oh, about dark, what about dark energy and dark matter? Uh, dark energy is uh, probably not a dark energy takes over at much more recent cosmic time, so it's not a it's not a huge uh, part of this uh, current of this story very early on. Dark matter, on the other hand, is. Uh, depending on what the dark matter power particle is, um, you know, the, as I said, you know, when we think about uh, uh, these simulations, right, I showed um, this one right here. Uh, it's the dark matter that governs, right, as dark matter is most of the matter in the universe, that governs how quickly these structures grow over time by gravity and collapse. Okay, now depending on whether this dark matter particle is cold or warm, these structures grow very differently and you get... Uh, the first stars forming at very different cosmic epochs. So people have been actually beginning to think that as these galaxy observations improve, maybe with the James Webb Space Telescope, we might actually be able to get constraints on the nature of the dark matter particle by simply counting the number of galaxies very early on in the universe. We have another question up here. Uh, you mentioned a lot about hydrogen, and in addition, you mentioned a little bit about carbon. Have you have the spectra of other elements, whether it's oxygen, neon, helium, etc., been studied as well uh, mm -hmm. in this context? Yes. Uh, the study, uh, most of the study of the chemistry has come from looking uh, at the, the quasars because they're so luminous. And so there's been a whole uh, slew of, of studies um, looking at uh, carbon, oxygen uh, elements uh, in, in the spectra of these quasars. Um, seeing uh, whether the relative elemental abundances appear dramatically different uh, from what we expect at the present day, whether they might be as you would expect or as theorists might predict from these first stars. And I think uh, people can only study, of course, the qua you know, quasars we start, we can't really find many quasars right now beyond about 780 million years after the uh, 780 million years after the Big Bang, but to that point, uh, the elemental abundances look fairly uh, normal. We're not seeing evidence of these weird four star first stars formed from pristine gas. Uh, we have another question here. So which was there first, the black hole or the galaxy? That is a, that's a wonderful question. <laughs> and it's one we're trying to figure out the answer to. When did, how did the first black holes collapse? Okay, and it's been a, a very exciting topic. Um, as people find these, these quasars at progressively uh, you know, larger and larger distances, we now know that you had to somehow form a supermassive black hole with maybe upwards of 100 million times the mass of the sun in 700 million years. Okay, and Given our understanding of how these black holes grow, I mean, this is, it's, it's very difficult to do that. So that depends on what we call the seed. Okay, what was the initial seed of the black hole? 
Was it the collapse of just a, a, a 10 solar mass star or the collapse of a, a few hundred solar mass star? Maybe these first stars collapsing directly to a black hole. We don't, we don't know yet at this point. Um, but that's one of the, the goals is to look back uh, far enough. If we can figure out the nature of these first stars, we might know how they end their lives. Do they end their lives as, as big black holes or not? Um, so at this stage, we don't know. That's, a, that's the $64 million It's question. what keeps him employed. Yeah. Any other questions? Oh, we have a question here. Yes, exactly. I think there was an even more recent Hubble ultra-deep field mm -hmm. in the X-ray, I think it was, or something? Um, there's certainly been work like in the X-ray. 2014, I think. There's, Did that there's, give you more information? There's been new work, uh, there's been new work uh, viewing uh, the fields in the X-ray, and that can identify some of these energetic uh, accreting black holes, these, uh, these quasars. So that work continues to, to fuel... Uh, the progress as well. Any other questions? If not, our next lecture, believe it or not, is on March the 23rd. So I hope to see most of you in a couple of months on March the 23rd. But in the meantime, please enjoy the College of Science seven-week lecture series on astrobiology called Life in the Universe. Um, and let's thank Professor Stark one more time. Good evening.